You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is Live from the very worst day in the sports calendar, it's the 252. Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett, joined by... I'm Chris Moore. And Sam Mulberry. Yes, it is Bastille Day, July 14th, 2021, the day after the baseball all-star game. So apart from like our local AAA team uh, continuing recent success, I don't think there's really anything... Oh, wait, 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 we have NBA Finals going on. We do, we do. do. I would say, isn't the day after the Super Bowl the worst day in sports? No, because then we're all excited about baseball coming. Yep. Even like on February 4th, you're you're still there? I don't know, man. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yep. Spoken like a true baseball fan. <laughs> okay. So it's maybe not terrible. We'll actually talk about the NBA a little bit more. Our uh, in-house expert will break down the Bucks suns It's a good 1970s matchup we <laughs> That's have right. going on. Uh, so it's been a while, guys, since we've talked. I think the last 252 is maybe February-ish. That sounds yep. right, yes. Okay, so we've got a good few months here to catch up on. So we'll do three to see later on. We're going to be talking about Summer Olympics, the 2020 games taking place starting 2021. So we'll talk <laughs> about that talk to chris more about how political scientists watch the olympics um we'll do three to see then of some events we think you should watch we'll do some this week in sports history let's do kind of three to review uh let's each talk about one thing that's happened you know in the past days weeks months since the last 252 that you found interesting or significant chris do you want to start us off with I know we've talked a lot about the NCAA yep. and kind of student-athlete labor and compensation. And, and so if you've been with us this whole three dozen-plus episode ride, you've heard versions of this. But feels like we maybe have hit a sort of breakthrough with uh, name image likeness, right? Yep, NIL. that's right. Yeah, can you break this down on short notice? Yeah, I'll try to make this quick. So I want to tie this to a personage that you can envision rather than just a series of court cases. And you may remember the uh, very good UCLA center from the mid-'90s, Ed O'Bannon. His brother Charles also played for the team, and they won an NCAA championship uh, during his time with with the uh, um, with UCLA. Kind of returned UCLA to some of a, a former glory mm-hmm. a, little, a little bit. Flash forward uh, maybe uh, a dozen years, and Ed is out of the NBA. He's moved on to another phase of his life, and he sees his uh, um, a friend and um, and his son playing a, um, a, a video game. Um, I think it was an Xbox video game. But it might have been PlayStation. Who knows? And uh, they were playing instantly basketball, and they said, look, we're playing you. <laughs> It was one of those games where you could play sort of historical teams. And it said O'Bannon on the back of the jersey. It was his shaved head. It was mm-hmm. the whole thing. And he said, how is... How, how much is it? How much am I? How much am I? How much is profit happening as a result of this game? And and basically, this is what this is a huge selling game. The NCAA was profiting profiting massively, as well as EA Sports was profiting massively from this game, and that initiated o- O'Bannon to become the figurehead of a series of lawsuits against the NCAA, basically arguing that athletes should own the right to their name, their likeness, their personage as it's represented and marketed and sold and merchandised by the NCAA, and that all came to a head this summer with the Supreme Court ruling that, yes, in fact, uh, players, uh, athletes from college athletes, though they be amateurs, do own the right to their image and they own the right to their name and they own the right to their impersonage. And so they get to profit from that. And, and the NCAA basically acquiesced. And so we're moving into 
really uncharted territory mm -hmm. where uh, we don't know exactly how, but very likely premier athletes in the NCAA can make major profits off of them, off of themselves, off of endorsements and other kinds of things moving forward. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting images like right away, some of the big name programs were doing workshops for their athletes, yep. extracting years, how you can capitalize on this. Yep. You can see this becoming a kind of recruiting lever for certain programs. Mm -hmm. You can imagine like a Heisman candidate quarterback holding a football camp yep. while they're still in college and yep. making big money off now, of that. To be clear, like you said, these are still amateurs. Yes. The, the court did not, as I understand it, go as far as to say that like they can be paid directly, right? This Correct. is still kind of amateur ancillary income, but for at least some players, significant ancillary Absolutely. income. Absolutely. And maybe not even like the sports you would think of. I saw, I think the Star Tribune did a kind of breakdown of local Minnesota, like University of Minnesota athletes, and one who stands to make a lot was actually a wrestler hmm. who, I mean, within that world, you know, there, there are specific endorsement opportunities. He has a huge Instagram following. And, and so that's what you're going to start seeing, certainly right. in like the Division One level. I'm a little less clear what this is going to mean, you know, as you trickle down the food chain to Division Two to Division Three. I don't know. We could stop paying our TAs sharing. if they're athletes, that sort of thing. That's no, right. Do um, right. you want to predict where are we headed with this? I mean, is it going to stop well, here? Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, it seemed like, indicated maybe there's going to be further uh, shoes to drop. Yeah, I actually do, don't think it stops here. I think there are some ways in which we could really see a massive transition in college sports, particularly – and I think what we're going to see is an emergence of a, the difference between – Sports that are high capital, high capitalization sports, okay. football, men's and women's basketball, um, as, as the top of the echelon, maybe baseball creeping into a second tier, and then a lot of sports that are basically um, funded by those sports. Right. And I don't know, like you said, wrestling's an interesting case, though, because mm -hmm. most wrestlers could not make money off of endorsements, nope. but a couple could. Yep. So how does this play out? It's not clear yet. The first thing I think we're going to see over the next course of the next few months is claims by famous college athletes who had their names or their likenesses stripped because of accepting money, making cases for reinstatement. Sure. Look for the Fab Five yep. from the University of Michigan. Look for my man, Terrell Pryor, and, and the ignominious Five from Ohio State who traded some of their jewelry for tattoos and had their games, had, had wins wiped out of their of their um, their records. Look for those to be reinstated. They're already saying that they intend to do that. All right. It'll be an interesting season a lot of respects coming back from COVID, but especially with this. One of the questions I have is we're thinking about, you know, being able to this this sort of ancillary income how that will affect i mean obviously that doesn't mean the university can pay people but um a lot of these big programs and maybe even smaller sport programs at certain schools who have certain wealthy donors or boosters to say like because one of the ways one of the things you need to make money off you know if you're going to have a camp or something like that is somebody who knows the business side and yeah. those big donors tend to do that so mm -hmm. i'm i'm wondering if you'll see more maybe in some of these smaller sports super teams where it's like well this donor is really into wrestling and would really like oklahoma state to be the the wrestling power mm -hmm. and knows how to say okay well come here all of you guys come here. We'll win national titles, yeah. and I'm going to find ways to create that ancillary income for you. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it, it. Correct me if I'm wrong. It certainly doesn't seem like this would do anything to change the trend away. From, I mean, back towards parity or something. This, this only no. should continue to make the wealthy wealthier. Right? right, and and I think Sam is right. It's going to create sort of these weird niche pockets. Like, what if there's a random donor at a D3 school that all of a sudden decides I want to be excellent at synchronized swimming. 
and we're just I'm just we're just gonna I have enough money to draw exactly that number of people here. I, I own a local car dealership. Oh look, the synchronized swimmers are endorsing my car dealership. That's their endorsement, and they're going to run a camp. I'm going to pay for the camp. They're going to reap the profits. I'm basically paying them. Where does that line get drawn? I think that's where Kavanaugh is going to come in here and say, eventually, perhaps we're just opening this up to to amateurism being eliminated from major college sports. Yeah, that, that's what it did interest me about the, the Supreme Court ruling. Like um, in otherwise polarized age, this is kind of an issue where it doesn't con- cut conventionally across partisan lines, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you'll, you'll get conservatives, libertarians making the argument you should just pay them all, right? Just mm-hmm. treat it like a free market for labor. Right. So we could be ahead. But it also seems like a conservative position to say, well, they should all be amateurs, yeah. you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's interesting. Well, this is this is what you're seeing is what you two just said is you see a fracture line between libertarianism and conservatism, mm-hmm. right? Conservatism would be tl- slow to change the institution, but because we have some very, quote unquote, arch conservatives on the court who are really libertarian, some of their mm-hmm. business mindsets, they're siding with some of the liberals who are saying these are workers who've been exploited. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, that's that's big news in America. Let's go around the world. Last night, of course, I was enjoying as a baseball fan the remarkable sight of Shohei Otani not only <laughs> starting and winning the game for the American League, but also batting leadoff as a designated hitter. Uh, there, I don't think there's anything remotely to compare to this in the history of baseball and probably not, I don't know any other sports that are quite like this. But let me go to the other side of the world from Japan and talk about European soccer or football. Okay. Uh, the Euros just concluded uh, next to the World Cup, I think, by acclamation. This is probably the most important football tournament in the world. Copa America was also going on in South America. Argentina beat Brazil. So that Good was job, Lionel Messi. That's right. Uh, I really, I've, I've found pretty entertaining tournament. I watched a lot of highlights, not so many full games, but uh, some kind of good, like, underdog, underdog stories, some underachievers. A big story going through, though, is that England seemed like it was headed for its first major tournament win since the 1966 World Cup that they won at Wembley because the semifinals and finals were played at Wembley uh, outside London. Got to the finals against Italy, scored in the second minutes, and then did a very England thing and lost on penalties mm. uh, to um, a really robust Italian side that's that's really been in great form for years now, just mm. not in the past couple months. A good story for them. Um, so good for Italy. Not so great for England and um, unleashed some really unfortunate and unfortunately very predictable responses because the three England players who either missed penalties or had them saved all happened to be black Englishmen. Um, mm-hmm. Marcus Rashford, for example, a great striker, uh, winger from Manchester United, hit the post, right? And uh, ultimately the deciding kick was a midfielder from Arsenal. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to forget his name. Bimiaco. Um Shusaka. Uh, anyway. We'll get this wrong. He's a poor, he's 19 years old. His parents are Nigerian immigrants. Um, you know, should be really the face of the Premier League. And instead, instantly, his social media accounts were attacked by racist supporters of the English team. And it sparked a kind of national conversation in England. And really, this has been going on for a while, I'd say. Uh, as we mentioned a few times in this podcast, for at least since COVID restart back in 2020, teams have just been taking a knee as a symbolic collective protest against racism, which is a very old issue in international and English football. And this team, I think, generally was acclaimed as being a kind of embodiment of a multicultural sort of England. I mean, it took a very progressive coach, Gareth Southgate, um, a lot of players, very socially conscious and socially active. You know, it seemed like a model. And in some ways, like, I read one piece suggesting its football team is really the institution of England, right? This mm-hmm. is the odd kind of situation of a nation that doesn't really have a state, right? They're, they're part of this collective multinational state. Right. 
and the English have always dominated that state, but you don't really have a lot of English institutions. Its football team is one of them. But, I mean, as much as the team seems like a multicultural England, it also unleashed this other side of English right. fandom, which is there. there is deep-seated racism in that country, not just in this country. So. Which didn't square with the political image that the current government was representing. Right. And so uh, the big news out of out of England from the political side was just months ago, the Johnson administra- er, administration had accepted a report that it itself had produced, basically saying that instances of racism in England were quite low, or in the UK were yep. quite low. Yep. And then those same people who trumpeted that report had to come out and condemn this sort of, you know, groundswell of racism against uh, against black English soccer players. Yeah, I mean, so maybe to American listeners, I mean, obviously this has been part of the national conversation for a long time, but George Floyd, the current rage about CRT, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it's not just America, right? This is happening in a lot of European countries, certainly happening yep, in England as well. And uh, sports, as usual, is both a mirror for that mm-hmm. um, and maybe potentially an agent of change. Maybe a theme we'll come back to in the second segment. Exactly. All right, Sam, let's let's turn things over to maybe something a little less politically weighted. Back home here, I know you are you both are serious NBA basketball fans. Do you want to break down what have the NBA playoffs been? Like? Well, I think it's been interesting because last year was a year because of the because of COVID and then the bubble that people were ready to say, well, do we really count this as a championship? But then it ended up that LeBron and the Lakers won. So of course we count that as a championship and we kind of forget about the bubble. And then we get mm-hmm. to this year which uh, they played, uh, I believe it was a 70, 72-game schedule, somewhere in that range, right? And um, obviously there were more COVID protocols uh, in place, but they were in their stadiums and fans, you know, slowly, slow the slow return of fans. Um, So this felt more like... Almost all of them were in their stadiums. Right, right, right. (laughs) Um, uh, And then there, uh, as the, the playoffs went on, there were teams that were slated to to sort of meet in the finals to to make the finals when you have the um the brooklyn nets sort of the the newest iteration of a super team that was really fun to watch when they were all on the court together which Mm -hmm. was uh which was relatively rare but as this playoffs went on there were um people missing time because of uh covid protocol so chris paul missed a little bit of time there were it just seemed like repeated repeated injuries um to the point where we have the uh, the Bucks and the Suns in the finals, and if anybody had Bucks Suns finals, you know, like that would have been quite a prediction. Even though I think they were both the two seeds in their respective That's they conferences, both had good so seasons. but still nobody, no, like that was not a, a common prediction. Um, so even though this year, in some ways, looks more like a normal season, there's more of a push to be like, well, does this one? Does this one really count because of all the other things around it? Now, I will say the season started later. I mean, we're in mid-July and the NBA Finals is still going on. Um, so, I mean, I think that's been interesting. And it led to uh, one of the strangest Finals games. I think I, I listened to Bill Simmons and he broke down that he thinks this is the worst lineup ever for a NBA Finals game. Oh. And it was, I think it was, I think it was game six of the Eastern Conference Finals between uh, the Bucks and the Hawks. And each of those teams has one deeply compelling player, both of whom were injured. <laughs> um, and I actually, and I don't always have time to watch NBA games, but I made an appointment. I was going to watch that game. I sat down and turned it on and I was thought, huh, where's Giannis? Where's Trey? <laughs> Neither of them were there. I watched a quarter and thought, this is, this is stupid. And I, then I actually just turned the game off. Um, but, but that's, that game is sort of emblematic of how this finals has gone, which is kind of a shame because this finals, we get, I mean, Chris Paul has never played in the finals. He's, right. I mean, he is one of the great NBA point guards of all time. And now we're, we're seeing him 
not just play but flourish in these finals. We're seeing Giannis, who has been sort of the heir apparent and the leader of of the sort of post-LeBron generation in some ways, mm-hmm. finally... Except LeBron won't leave. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, you know, he's finally in the finals and putting up tremendous numbers, but the whole thing has this sort of cloud over it of, well, is this... How much? How much does this count? I mean, and yep. obviously, it's you know, ten years from now, it just counts as a as a championship. Yeah. But but in the moment, how much can they and uh, can they enjoy it with the people around them saying, "Well, but you didn't have to play this, and you didn't have to play this." Sam, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. I'm asking more for your feeling on this, more so than a zeitgeist kind of or general mm-hmm. general acceptance kind of question. You you sort of highlighted COVID and injuries. I'm not convinced that this doesn't count as much or even more than last year's bubble championship for the Lakers because – Oh, I think it should. Okay. I'm just saying like if, if the uh, the sort of sports radio talker is mm-hmm. more around – the sa- in the same way when the bubble started, people were saying that until the, the thing that people thought was going to happen happened and then yeah. they're like, okay, well, then that counts. I think had the Suns won last year, people would have said – no, I don't know that the, that a bubble championship's really a championship. They were saying that even as the Heat were being competitive and challenging the yep. Lakers, right? It's yep. only because the Lakers beat the Heat handily. Now, in this case, I think you're right. This has much to do with expectations. These were not – we were expecting the Nets. We were expecting the Lakers. We were expecting this superstar showdown. We didn't get it, and that's causing people to question the validity. Yeah. And for my casual fans like me, one reason I'm probably not paying as much attention to this is because it's so late, uh, and because of the peculiar circumstances of the Olympics, I'm paying more attention to Team USA at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, under the direction of Greg Popovich, one of my favorite coaches, has great players, Kevin Durant, among others, and yet has already lost two exhibition games. One to Australia is not surprising. Australia is a gold medal contender, but Nigeria, which historically has not fared well against Team USA, actually defeated Team USA. Um, Sam, what should we make of this? Should we care at all if we're fans of, of what we think of still as the dream team? Is this actually Popovich's way of warming them up for Olympic my, my question would be, what is the consequences of them losing those games? Uh, nothing so far. but then And I think you care it nothing. It doesn't augur anything? Nope. For the- I, 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 would, I would think not. Okay. Well, that was my ham-handed way of teasing out our second segment, which is all about the Tokyo Olympics and actually a little bit about the Winter Olympics coming up very shortly thereafter because of the weird COVID schedule. That's right. In segment two, we're going to have Chris Moore be our interview guest to talk to us about how political scientists and especially international relations specialists view the Olympics. Uh, So we'll be right back after a break to talk a little bit about Tokyo and Beijing next year. This week in sports history. Stockholm, Sweden, July 15th, 1912. Having already won the Olympic pentathlon, Native American athlete Jim Thorpe added the decathlon, winning the shot put, high jump, hurdles, and 1,500-meter run, and placing no lower than fourth in any of the other six events. But he was stripped of his gold medals after it came to light that he had played minor league baseball, violating the strict amateurism of the time. Colorado Springs, Colorado, July 16th, 1995. Swedish golfer Annika Sorenstam overtakes Meg Mallon to win the U.S. Women's Open by one stroke. It's her first of three times winning the event, and the first of her ten major titles overall. 
Cleveland, Ohio, July 17, 1941. The visiting Yankees beat the Indians, but Joe DiMaggio goes 0 for 3 with a walk, snapping his hitting streak at an astonishing 56 games. The next day, he starts a 16-game streak, doubling off fellow future Hall of Famer Bob Feller. Montreal, Quebec, July 18, 1976. 14-year-old Romanian Nadia Comaneci becomes the first Olympic gymnast to earn a perfect score. Her performance on the uneven bars is the first of seven tens she'll receive in route to winning three gold medals, including the all-around title. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Welcome back to segment two on this week's episode of the 252. We're going to do something a little bit unusual here and turn things around. One of our co-hosts is going to become our interview guest. Uh, That's right. Chris Moore is going to talk to us about how political scientists watch the Olympics. Let me explain why we're doing this. So uh, as you may or may not know, the 252 is actually associated with a class at Bethel called History 252L, History and Politics of Sports. It's due to come up again in spring of 2022, but Chris Moore, who taught and developed the class with me the last time we did it, is on sabbatical in spring of 22. So I'm doing the class by myself, which is fine, and I'm happy to do that, but I'm not a political scientist. And I'll be looking through the window holding a boombox over my head. (laughs) So I thought what we'd do is we do a series of 252s occasionally between now and then is we would record some interviews with Chris that give him a way to kind of speak into the class Mm -hmm. at a distance without uh, uh, intruding on his sabbatical. And so specifically... uh, uh, creating some kind of resources we can use to help give a kind of political scientist angle on the topics we're discussing. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting about how things will work is that the first week of class in the spring leads right into the beginning of the 2022 Winter Olympics held in Beijing. In fact, uh, the Friday of class is right before the uh, Olympic opening ceremonies in Beijing. So mm-hmm. what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how a political scientist would view the Olympics both with an eye to the Tokyo Games, which are starting uh, next Friday as we record in July 21, but also with an eye to the Beijing Games coming up in February of 22. Okay, right. so we have two audiences for this. Hopefully this this will make sense. Chris, let me just start very broadly. Sure. Uh, and really for students especially, what what is political science? What do, what do you guys do? And then specifically, <laughs> what do you do within that realm? Should I use my standard joke is that we do history badly? No. Um, <laughs> no, political science is the study of politics, and politics shows up in very obvious ways. Like when we see Congress take votes or presidents sign legislation or veto legislation or send troops uh, into um, foreign fields or um, when the Supreme Court makes a ruling on something. But politics happens in massive, all different kinds of facets of our lives, and it happens at the Olympics too. We see politics in sports in terms of what rules affect society and who can participate uh, and who receives funds. But we also see politics in terms of how countries take on nationalistic roles uh, in the context of something very much like the Olympics, for example. Yeah, so this is going to show up in a lot of different ways in the class. We'll be talking about things like public policy, for example. It would be a big topic yes. probably in March as we mm-hmm. set up the schedule. Um, and we'll, we'll eventually kind of circle back to the Olympics in the class because our, our third quarter of the class will be more about international relations, which mm-hmm. is really your area of expertise, Chris, uh, right. specifically. And you know, th- this is not just the Olympics. Uh, um, at least in my field as a diplomatic historian, 
Guardian, I, uh, our premier journal, occasionally runs articles about sports diplomacy, which sometimes is bilateral. Right. Uh, you know, sports being used, for example, wrestling has been used to try to create an entree between Iran and the United States, or ping pong diplomacy, which was famously portrayed in Forrest Gump. That's but right. Shows, uh, but it's a real episode. Yeah, and it's so it's true. It might seem trivial, but as you say, politics shows up in lots of unexpected places and includes sports and maybe most famously the Olympics, mm -hmm. right? And we can think of lots of examples of this. 1936 Berlin, right? Yep. What is Adolf Hitler's regime trying to do with the Olympics? What does that mean then for countries that participate and for athletes right. like Jesse Owens? There was actually an attempt to have a, blo uh, um, a boycott of 36 because of the treatment of Jewish athletes, right? Um, shows up obviously with Cold War connotations when Absolutely. the Soviet Union starts participating in the 50s, Miracle on Ice, 1980, mm -hmm. fill in the story here. But, um, but, but an exchange of boycotts of the Olympics as well. Right. Um, and based in in you know in eighty and 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 subsequently in, in eighty four too. So uh, later on in the semester, we're going to be reading a book that Chris recommended the first time we taught the class that I want to bring back. This is by Victor Cha, who mm -hmm. has worked was the National Security Council. Yes, right. uh, he's an expert on uh, Korea, um, and he has served in government as well as in academia. So he wrote a book, I think, in two thousand nine called "Beyond the Final Score: The Politics of Sport in Asia," and so it mostly refers to obviously the two thousand eight Beijing Summer Games. Mm -hmm. The 1988 Seoul Olympics Summer Games and the first time the Olympics came to Asia in 1964 in Tokyo. Yes. So it'd be kind of interesting to come back and see what he might add given Tokyo 2020 and Beijing 2022. Right. Um, so let me just ask, the, first of all, what's unique about Asia as a field for studying the politics of sports and specifically the politics of the Olympics? Well, let me step back and say this, that as we, as political scientists, we can see the Olympics as a lens by which we can study other kinds of sports as a lens. We can say other kinds of politics. So we can see, um, who rivalries are. Um, we can see how nationalism is inculcated, but we can also see politics played out directly at the Olympics too, not merely as a lens, but as a, as a medium, as a forum by which Olympic, uh, by which power politics takes place. If you look through the history of the Olympics, the modern Olympics, that is, which has existed for a little bit over a hundred years now, uh, most of the Olympi Olympiads that have taken place, both summer and winter, have occurred in Western countries and developed Western countries in particular. And it's only in the last couple of decades that we've really seen Olympics travel to South America, um, in Rio, and into, um, uh, but many places in the world still have not, uh, sort of had a, a local Olympics, even though this is built as an international sport, it's very much still the province of very wealthy countries, um, and particularly Western wealthy countries. And so what Cha's point is, is that we have these limited number of cases where the Olympics has traveled into Asia. Mm -hmm. And the Asian countries take this very seriously, not just as a place for academic comp or athletic competition, and not just as a place of international goodwill, but as a place to demonstrate certain kinds of cultural or political attainment. Um, right. So in 1964, the first time the games came to Asia, I mean, this is only 19 years removed from the end of World War II. Japan had been a defeated and occupied nation. But the Japan that hosted the games in 1964 was an ascended economic power that yes. was officially passive. It was Japan's coming out as a post-World mm -hmm. War II economic superpower, right? And uh, and likewise, Korea in 88 yeah. was also showing itself as an emergence from um, essentially a more authoritarian economy to a more democratic mm -hmm. uh, political institutions and, uh, and a vibrant economy as well. And then we'll come back to Beijing, actually, because we got this odd situation of 2008 Summer Games mm -hmm. and now the 2022 Winter Games. So I want to come back to Beijing. But let's talk a little bit about what to expect then in this 
2020-21 COVID postponed Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Let's just start with opening ceremonies coming up next Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, as a political scientist, what are you looking for when you watch opening ceremonies generally? And is there anything specific that maybe people should be looking for in Tokyo coming up in July 21? So this is this is dangerous. So here's what I'll um, here's why I say this is dangerous. There is a tendency on my part as well to read too much into the opening ceremonies, particularly in democratic countries like Japan, like the United States. Oftentimes, the opening ceremonies are given over to some kind of a designer, and I don't know what kind of world that you come from to become the person who designs the opening ceremonies. But there's this small cabal of people who kind of trade off that that enterprise, and they are given certain kinds of broad themes, broad ideas to communicate. They try to bring in sort of cultural elements that signify the importance of the of the institution, but also things from the, you know, sort, of, sort of general international goodwill. The one where I thought this was particularly emblematic of the country was in 2008 in China, which we can come back to because as, a, as an authoritarian, uh, very top-down uh, um, government, they were able to dictate much more closely what this was, what the opening ceremonies were supposed to look like. Oftentimes, the opening ceremonies developed devolve into more bigger flights of fancy. Now, this case is going to be weird because we're still in COVID and Japan, um, a majority of Japanese citizens don't want the Olympics to occur, which is unreal. Um, That's amazing. And that's because of COVID. Uh, Only a fraction of Japanese citizens are actually vaccinated at this point. And there's a surge um, of cases in Japan. So this is coming at a very um, difficult time. So there won't be a lot of spectators there. Um, My guess is that will really affect what the opening ceremonies look like, the grandiosity of them. I Mm -hmm. I expect a very muted opening ceremony. Yeah, I wonder if, I mean, it's a weird analog, but I wonder if it's a little bit like 1948. So London was kind of the emergency host of the Olympics in 1948. Yep. Again, the aftermath of World War II, uh, and when Britain itself was in the middle of what was called austerity, you got what were called the austerity games. I wonder if there's a level of that. Now, at the same time, I also imagine a lot of money is being spent on this. Yep. And that's another kind of political side of the games, like, at least as a matter of domestic politics in Japan, like, doesn't this say something about national priorities and mm-hmm. where money goes to and whose health matters more, right? Like right. a lot of Japanese are not yet vaccinated. There have been surges and yet you're bringing in people from around the world and prioritizing their health care. That, that's another way in which sports raises issues of politics or public policy. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, let's then preview now. So this is really putting you on the spot because we're months away from this happening. But mm-hmm. as students listen to it, they will be mere days away from this happening. I think I'm going to have students watch the opening ceremonies for the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Yep. And I'm curious what they should be looking for. And maybe even if you want to sketch, like you expect it to be similar in any way to the 2008 games, I assume a much smaller scale, but right. or will it be a different kind of message you think the Beijing organizers will be trying to send through those ceremonies? I am so thrilled that these two opening ceremonies are occurring so close to each other because we really will be comparing something closer to apples to apples mm-hmm. because that we can't say that the technology has changed or something like that. Um, we're going to see whatever Japan, whatever Tokyo produces, and then whatever Beijing produces. And these are two traditional rivals, mm-hmm. too. So they will be looking to each other. Or certainly, Beijing will be looking to whatever Tokyo does in, in response. Uh 2008 was just a seminal statement of Chinese uh, power and emergence, and it was a, it was a, it really was the closest thing I could see to a um, a statement of raw power in the form of an opening ceremony. The Winter Olympics is about a tenth mm-hmm. of the budget 
of the Summer Olympics for most countries that host. Um, it's a much smaller affair, much fewer events, much fewer athletes. And China is not the typical country that produces winter Olympic athletes. This is not Norway or Sweden or Finland, traditional winter Olympics powers. So it's not clear to me how the Chinese government, the, the Chinese Communist Party will use the winter Olympics, but they won't let the opportunity go um, un- uncapitalized. Okay. Uh, getaway question. You've alluded to boycotts before, yep. and there's been some discussion of some degree of boycott or other mm-hmm. kind of uh, economic sanctions against China for the ongoing status of Hong Kong, treatment of the Uyghur population, which has been called, at least by some, a cultural genocide, right? And, right. and for example, Nick Kristof, New York Times, raising the question of, should Americans, should the world be participating in a game run by a government that's doing that to its own citizens? Right. Do you expect anything like a boycott, uh, corporate divestment, anything, uh, people refusing to run ads? Like, what, what could this happen? What might it look like in February? I'm very curious about that, too, and I kind of want to ask both of you. I'll, I'll go first okay. to take the heat off, but I think there's about a 10% chance that the United States ends up boycotting the Beijing games. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, there is pressure. The pressure is coming from Joe Biden's far left, mm-hmm. and I think that pressure will um, could begin to increase uh, because there is plenty of information about uh, what's happening to the Uyghurs in, in Western China that could be released between now and then. That's true. But 10%. I think, it, I think it's very likely the United States shows up, but it's not a 100% guaranteed chance. What do you I think? guess I would have said 5%. And that's just based on history. It's only happened once before. Mm-hmm. Right? And that was in the middle of the Cold War, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, right. the collapse of detente, failure of like SALT II, all sorts of things mm-hmm. going on with the traditional established rival. The relationship with China is much fuzzier. Right? Mm-hmm. The U.S. did not boycott the 36 games. Uh, the U.S. did not, unlike African nations, boycott the 76 Montreal games because of South Africa's status. I mean, it's not something Americans tend to do. Right. And so I wonder instead if what you might see instead would be like corporations finding their own ways of expressing disapproval um, and kind of woke capitalism. Right. Sure. You could you could imagine uh, Coke having a whole freedom uh, themed some of their commercials that they run during the during the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, Sam, do you have a thought? Uh, and I'm not going to go over 10. So okay. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in the you'll under. Take, we'll take the under. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just, I think everything Chris said that it's, it's, it's such a rare occurrence. And yeah, that I, I, I'm not saying that it shouldn't, but I'm saying I don't think that it will. I'll just throw this out there uh, to consider the Bush administration, the George W. Bush mm-hmm. administration felt burned by Putin, who took the up, the, Olymp- the Olympics as an opportunity to move forces at the time, um, into, uh, countries on its southern, southern border. True. Um, and they felt like he used the Olympics as this fig leaf in order to basically hold foreign leaders hostage at that point. What would happen if during the Beijing Winter mm-hmm. Games, China does something towards Taiwan? Wow. Uh, yeah, I, that, it seems like it would be a scenario like that, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess the only thing I'll add here is we're going to have multiple ways of testing this. You know, we've had events evolving Russia yep. recently where Americans decide to participate. We've got a World Cup coming up in Qatar, Qatar right? Mm-hmm. Which does not have a terrific human rights record and seeing people die in constructing these ridiculous stadiums. Uh, I, I don't know. It just seems like these occasions have come before and it's never amounted to a boycott. So it's hard for me to imagine. But I also would say this is another of these kind of sports politics issues that can cut across some of the other fissures in American politics. You know, it's not just the far left 
there are Republicans that have, uh, for example, called out the NBA you know, mm-hmm. and complained, oh, it's the, the progressive NBA won't say anything against Hong Kong and will publish Daryl Morey when he says something on Twitter about it. Right? Exactly. So you could see that kind of weird coalition forming, especially if there's some kind of precipitating event you can latch on to. You know, some, some further shoe dropping about the Uyghurs, some tension you know, in Taiwan Straits or something. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, so students and listeners, just one example of how we use sports to talk about not just history, but politics and and really like pressing immediate current issues that these are not simply trivial or symbolic, but the symbols are important too. And maybe something we'll come back to is kind of what this reflects about national identity or international values too. So hopefully uh, um, you'll enjoy the Olympics as you watch them and students as you watch them in February will have a lot to say in class about this. Okay, we'll be back to wrap up and give you some Olympic events to look for in Tokyo right after the break. Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. All right, guys, let's wrap up our summer episode of the 252 pre-Olympic episode with three to see Tokyo themed. Uh, which Olympic events are you most excited to watch in Tokyo? Chris Moore, get us started. All right. If you go to the website that the Tokyo Olympics hosts, the English version, they break their sports down into 67 separate categories. That's not events. That's categories of events. Some, like track, swimming, and basketball, draw lots of American attention. But other sports represent the reaction to extreme sports, X Games, other adventure sports. But if you look past the newer editions, you'll see the continuing influence of militarism on the games that we play. First are things like martial arts, judo, taekwondo, karate, even boxing. And then there's wrestling with a military lineage stretching back to the Greek foundations of the Olympics. But beyond that, there's shooting, both pistol and rifle. But for me, the pinnacle of militarism is the modern pentathlon. In one day, competitors will swim, fence, ride a horse, run a couple of miles, all interspersed with target shooting. It's a lot. The sport is also highly competitive, with 11 countries placing an athlete in the top 20 in the world rankings for men, and 10 countries in the top in the rankings for the top 20 for women. No Americans, though. It's true. I was trying to explain this to my son. Modern pentathlon was basically what would be the ideal aristocratic European army officer? What should they be able to do? Right? Exactly. All those things. Yep. Okay. Uh, Sam? Uh, when it comes to the Olympics, I'm partial to events that are measured by the stopwatch and the tape measure. No, du- no judges scores for me, thanks. That means I like to start my Olympics with a healthy dose of swimming and then follow it up with track and field. So which Olympian am I most excited to see? American swimmer Katie Ledecky is back for her third Olympic Games at the old age of 24. She's al- she already owns six Olympic medals, five gold and one silver, and four world records. In 2021, she'll be competing in five events, the 200, 400, 800, and 1500 free and the 4x200 free relay. If she can strike gold in all five races, she'll place second behind only Michael Phelps and his astonishing 23 gold medals among all Olympic swimmers in history. 
Okay, guys, I approach the Olympics like a visit to the Minnesota State Fair. At the latter, <laughs> I get to sample foods I don't normally eat. The former lets me watch sports I normally ignore. So in that spirit, I'm looking forward to renewing my acquaintance with water polo. That's right, the aquatic version of playing basketball or hockey while running a marathon. On the men's side, the U.S. team, which hasn't medaled since 2008, is overshadowed by a variety of sides from Europe. Hungary, Croatia, and Serbia have won all the Olympic medals, uh, Olympic golds in the 21st century, and Spain were silver medalists in the most recent European and World Championships. But since women's water polo was added to the Olympics in 2000, the U.S. have medaled in every tournament, including gold, in both 2012 and 2016. American women have also won the last three World Championships, and last month, Team USA defeated Hungary 14-8 to take gold in the last pre-Olympic warm-up. They're led by Captain Maggie Steffens, 28-year-old defender who won three NCAA titles with Stanford and led the Rio Olympic scoring with 17 goals. And Ashley Johnson led all goalies in 2016 at the Olympics with a 65% save percentage. Well, that for a deep dive. That's a water polo on the 252. Well, guys, it was fun to do this again. I'm excited to watch the Olympics. It is one of my favorite events. And maybe we can come back in August and recap, talk about how it went. That sounds great. Okay, Chris, take us away. Uh, on behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, you've been listening to The 252. Uh, make sure you subscribe to this channel. This is channel 3900. Uh, there's lots of great stuff coming down the channel here. If you want to hear uh, Sam Mulberry and Barrett Fisher talk about The Princess Bride, you're not too late. Jump on and check it out. Um, thanks for listening to us. And to hear from our podcast again, go Royals. Go Royals.